Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This air operation today is the most important air operation yet conducted in this war. The target must be destroyed. It is of vital importance to the enemy, your friends and comrades, that have been lost and that will be lost today are depending on you. Their sacrifice must not be in vain. Good luck, good shooting, and good bombing. That was General Fred Anderson of 8th Bomber Command, the U.S. 8th Air Force of the U.S. Army Air Force talking about mission number 115, Schweinfurt, again, Thursday, the 14th of October, 1943. Hello, and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, the Second World War podcast for all your Second World War needs. Now, Jim. Or indeed, World War II needs, if you're a Well, yeah, if you're of the World War II. <laughs> or, you know, if you're, if you're Russian, great patriotic war because you're only in the one weren't you right um so <laughs> um, uh, nothing else well, happened it's only happening on the eastern front yeah nothing to see there um uh, but welcome and uh, what we've decided to do is do a series of podcasts to talk about the uh campaign uh, and the second in fact the, the war of the u.s eighth air force the mighty eighth who will be cropping up in a in a tv program on your well on your iphone i mean but don't watch it on your iphone watch it on a great big television if you possibly yeah, can yeah go as big as you can go as big as you can if you can if if you're you know rich enough to rent an imax and stream it from your phone to the imax if you can make the screen mirroring work <laughs> or even better go to the sphere in las vegas yeah, and watch go to the there. sphere in las vegas and watch it there um, although i, I imagine the sphere is so uh, anyway we we distracted ourselves whatever here. We want to. What we want to do is do a series of podcasts about their about their campaign, about their highs and lows from their inception, the thinking behind the campaign, which is really, really important in how it influenced and shaped its progress. Um, yeah. Well, I think the other thing about it is is that the, in the narrative, you, you know, the sort of in your mind's eye, you're thinking, you know, bomber streams of 
B-17s and machine guns rattling and, and you know, Fokker Wolves coming towards it and, and then a, a bit of downtime at the at the air base in East Anglia. And, and and it kind of feels all very sort of linear. And, of course, it isn't. There's there's all sorts of swings and roundabouts and, yeah. you know, Stops different and scales and- as the war progresses yeah. and, and all sorts of stuff and, and lots of different factors into it, which I suspect the vast majority of people just are, are not aware of. The thing I'd like to say is having, having re- you know, been reading, reading in preparation for this, I always slightly used to think, and obviously... But both bomber commands campaign and and, and the the eighth and the seventeenth bomber campaigns, it's a terrifying business. But I always used to think at least the guys in the daylight bombing could see the German fighters coming. They at least had that right. And that I used to think the poor old the poor sods in bomber command. You know something creeps up on them in the night, and maybe they see it, maybe they don't, and they've only got three oh three machine guns to deal with it. And it's so so. I used to think that the balance of terror, if I had to pick it. For, for the crews sat with the bomber command crews but having been reading about this i'm beginning to change my mind <laughs> yeah no it's pretty bad <laughs> i'm not so sure that seeing the swarms of fuck wolf fw190s coming at me would be that is that much better than not being able to see them coming at me you, you, you know what i mean jim yeah yeah no, completely completely it's uh, it's it is utterly utterly terrifying yeah it's the crews and and these these very young men yeah. who are, are sent over and, and spend, you know, every time they go on a mission, they're spending, you know, two-thirds of that mission just in a state of heightened tension and, frankly, terror, That knowing that the chances are they're going to get shot down at some point. You know, it, it is literally only a matter of time. Um, and the statistics by October 1943 are, are appalling. But we'll come on to all that. And I've, the other thing I should just say is that you can see, you can listen to these this series um, twice a week when they normally get transmitted on a tuesday and a thursday or you can sign up to the kind of gold standard and get them ad free and all at once if you choose to as one gigantic digestible lump i'm going to say it's a digestible lump (laughs) it's a very digestible lump (laughs) but but so the u.s eighth air force they fly their last raid on i think april the 24th 1945 don't they they fly their last combat sorties so 18 months before that they fly Black Thursday, probably the nadir Mission of their, number one one five. The nadir of their fortunes, the second Schweinfurt raid on the fourteenth of October, nineteen forty three. And I think there is this always in a war or in a big campaign like this. There is a sort of game of, you know, one side takes the advantage and the, the thing the thing swings backwards and forwards. Not necessarily yeah, even going back and forth. Yeah, but yeah, but not not necessarily like a pendulum because so, sometimes it'll take the full swing one way. And then only like a quarter swing the other. There's no symmetry to the to this pendulum. So the pendulum is, a, is a, not the best analogy. But the point. Yeah. But the point is, if you were to look at the state of the Eighth Air Force and what it's capable of on the 14th of October 1943, match and see how its ambitions match its abilities, you would not expect the thing that the Air Force that downs tools in April of 1945, would you? No, the transformation is absolutely enormous, and and, it, and it's really important to, to 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 stress that that Black Thursday is called Black Thursday for a reason, and at the end of it, well, you know, we're sort of jumping the gun here, but at the end of it, you, you know, the whole strategy for the Mighty Eight Daylight Bombing Campaign, which is effectively the United States Army Air Force bombing campaign in Europe, 
is in tatters and it is a moment of deep crisis but we should go back to it and, wh- and why on that morning this is the the bit that you read out earlier on is fred anderson he's the commander of eighth bomber command which is one of the kind of sort of subdivisions of the eighth air force which at this point is commanded by uh, lieutenant general ira Aker. and fred anderson knows that this mission is a is a tough one and it's come at the end of a week of very very intense bomber missions deep into the heart of the Reich. So this is not milk runs into France to hit the marshalling yards at Rouen. This is not this is not kind of even the Ruhr. This is this is much deeper into Germany, which comes with a whole host of problems which we'll we'll explain. Uh, and the fact of the matter is the last time the Eighth Air Force went to Schweinfurt well, this is um, the important was on bit. the seventeenth yeah. of August. Um, and that was the first Schweinfurt raid where they also at the same time attacked Regensburg, which is not a million miles away. Three hundred and fifteen bombers 60 shot down, 600 aircrew lost, 11 further aircraft scrapped, and 164 damaged. So one-third of the attacking force was written off. Now, you imagine that. That's that's in three raids. You've lost your entire force at that rate of attrition. So as you can imagine, no one is very keen to go back to Schweinfurt. The big part of the problem with the first raid, wasn't it, is there were two bomber streams that were supposed to fly together and swamp the German defences. And the, the weather the weather interfered with that plan, so they were sent in separate waves. So the Germans had time and the luxury of the time to regroup and attack the second wave with its fight with its fighter defences when they then showed up. So the the eighth took a, a colossal morning. Schweinfurt, for those who don't know, is sort of halfway between Frankfurt and Nuremberg, a little a little north of that, but so well in well into Germany. I mean, deep in Germany. Two hours beyond the Ruhr, which is their their normal sort of industrial target flight, and deep, deep in Germany. And the reason they're going there is they're going there for for ball bearings, isn't it, Jim? It is, and ball bearings are, are, are vital in um, they're a vital component of bomber parts and indeed fighter parts. Let's say fighter parts, but but certainly um, bomber parts and indeed tanks and all sorts of things. Anything that needs to rotate, anything with an axle. You need, you, yeah, anything yeah. with an axle, you need you need ball bearings. So so that is why it's it's important. And the problem is, is you're going in unescorted, um, and that that's the issue. So, so fighter escorts at this time in October 1943 can take you so far. They can take you to kind of the edge of the Ruhr, the edge of Germany, but they can't take you deep into Germany. And the problem is, is that despite being in these these, you know, bombers would go over in a formation. Imagine a kind of a convoy going across the Atlantic. It's a bit like that, and they've all got each bomber, whether it be a B twenty four Liberator or whether it be a B seventeen Flying Fortress, has got thirteen fifty caliber guns in it. So that's a you know collectively that's huge. And the theory beforehand was that this would be enough. Let's do the raid. Let's do the raid, and and yeah, and we'll fo- we'll follow one particular crew. I think. Yeah, yeah. So no one wants to go back to Schweinfurt. Put it put it that way. Put it mildly. No, no one's keen. So 92nd Bomber Group, they're based in Poddington near Wellingborough. And having having gone to school in Bedford, there, there's all of these old stations around there. And um, so a, a lot of these names suddenly, when, when you when you read about the Eighth For- Air Force, if you like, having known that bit of the world and then known, known a little bit around Barry Stemmons as well, these these names just pop up. The, the, the villages where, oh, of course, that's what that that's what that gigantic flat farm is with a hangar. Yes, right? yes exactly. <laughs> that explains that. So, 92nd Bomber Group, they've been there. They've, they've came in 1942, the previous year. They're one of the first to join the US 8th Air Force. And they've been held back from going to North Africa because one of the things that happens to the bomber campaign is that because of torch, they're needed in, they're needed in North Africa all of a sudden. And, and so, the, the bomber campaign in Britain is denuded. 8th Air Force is denuded of some of its resources. And you have us a, a Lieutenant J. Kemp McLaughlin, Jim, to, to tell the story of this raid. Who is he? 
well, he's 24 years old. He's from Braxton County in West Virginia. Um, and he's one of the one of the ones that isn't posted to North Africa um, following the torch landings in November 1942. Rather, he he and his crew helped to set up the the first 11th Combat Crew Replacement Centre. So this is crews coming in, and what happens is you, you arrive in England. Um, quite often, you would fly in in a in a, in a B-17 or a B-24. That would then be handed over straight to a squadron. You then go to a replacement centre, waiting to be allocated a, a a bomb group and indeed a bomb squadron within that. Um, so he's doing that. And he's doing instructions and all the rest of it. But he's then sent back to back to the 92nd in May 1943. And in early July, McLaughlin's transferred to the 326th Bomb Squadron within the 92nd Bomb Group. So what happens is you have three bomb squadrons within each bomb group um, with a new crew and a new ship, which is which he calls Fame's Favoured Few. And it's very much the American way to, to name all your, you know, we, Bomber Command has, has G for George. But Fame's Favourite Few, I, I imagine, does it have a, you know, a busty, young, quasi-pornographic picture on the side of it? Or it, it seems very likely, doesn't it? Well, well, it does, but it also sounds like a sort of, this, this is a sort of Shining Liberty uh, style of American plane name rather than Galback Home Than Lil they, Doll. They, they, t- they tend to fall into, they tend to fall into two categories, don't they? They do. It's either, it's either Shining Bright or it's like Up All Night. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly <laughs> that. So, so your squadron is then divided into flights and he's a flight leader. So he's one of the senior bods and he, they were one of the leading bombers for Schweinfurt 1 on the 17th of, uh, of August, but... Actually, whether you have a really tough time or whether you have a really bad time usually depends on your position in the formation. And the, and the dud position is is being in at the bottom of the formation. That That's where you absolutely don't want to the be. The back and the bottom. Back and the bottom. So, so the higher you are, generally speaking, you're kind of okay. Not, not okay, but you've got a better chance. So he has a comparatively time there, but he's certainly not, you know, he knows all about how, how bad it was the first time around, and he's definitely not up for uh, up for an F1. And he says, said, you know, we all knew that we'd be going back to his target at, um, at some point, and each of us hoped not to be selected for that raid. But he's put on alert the previous day, the 13th of October, but not at that point told the target. And the weather's terrible. You know, there's this huge blanket of, cloud over the channel and northwest europe and he's really really hoping it's it's going to be scrubbed because no one wants to go out in bad weather either it's just as you know forget where the target is you know going out in bad weather is really bad because it's incredibly dangerous when you take off into tentose cloud because what you have to do is you have to climb and climb and climb until you get out of the out of the um, cloud base and then you form up in a big you know you circle around and there's a forming up plane which is usually colored sort of orange with pink spots or whatever and 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 that's so everyone can see it and you form up on that, and then you get into your formation, and then you start going and go across. So the what we're sea. talking about is scores of aircraft flying through cloud with others. Where they can't see one another. Where they can't see one another. All fly, all climbing at different rates. No one knows how fast anyone else is flying or where anyone else is. I mean, I don't know, Jim. Have you you've done a fair bit of light, light aircraft flying in your time? I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, my brother-in-law used to have a plane, and and um, I remember once he he I can't remember we we'd gone somewhere and we were coming back, and he said. <laughs> he said, I was sat in the co-pilot seat and he goes, okay, all you really got to do is keep your eyes peeled. If you see anything, just tell me, you know, it's just that that's just, that's just, if you see any other aircraft, just let me know. I'll know where they are from the air traffic control. I ought to, but if you see anything, just tell me. And then, I, and then we've got eyes on whatever there is. Right. So we took off 2000 feet, went into cloud and, and it's literally just, it's like white on the windscreen. It's like yes, like like you literally where, can't see anything. You literally can't see anything. And I'm thinking, well, if there's anything out there, and we fly into it, 
We'll, ne- we'll never even know. So I sat there like as white as the as white as the cloud with absolute with ab- in a- because I hadn't hadn't prepared myself for it in total terror until you know ten minutes later up we popped up out the cloud or where or wherever or we exited the cloud the other end. But it's that thing you know. So scale that up to a great big you know. And of course, aircraft are less safe. The other thing to remember is aircraft are a lot less safe back then than they are now. <laughs> well, and they're huge and they're, they're full of fuel and bombs. Well, they're huge and they're full of full of fuel and they're full of bombs, you know, and, and all these multipliers. So, I mean, I, I you know, you're absolutely right. Even, even leaving the airbase is dangerous. Going through the cloud is dangerous. Forming up is dangerous. And this is long before we even think about the Luftwaffe. Anyway. Anyway, so he's hoping it's going to be scrubbed, but it isn't. Early breakfast, powdered eggs and bacon, truck pulls up, takes the officers to the briefing room. And this is like a, a sort of classic village hall. You know, it's got the stage at the end of the screen. It's got the, um, you know, the board. It's got the, the little curtains which hide the map, which shows them where they're going to be. And they never do it. They never, they, they dramatically reveal, pull the curtain back when they're going to reveal what the mission is rather than people <laughs> coming in and seeing it. Um, sort of rows of fold-away chairs, that kind of thing, a, a hubbub, everyone's smoking. That's for crowd control reasons as much as they else hiding the target. Rather, they're not thinking that some little old lady in the village might be cycling by and then... Oh, no, to, no, 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 no. Go, no, go to no, her radio no, no. set in her loft and... and, and, and no, it's, it's because what they want, they want everyone there, everyone watching. They want everyone watching, they want everyone's attention, and then they want to do it. So, so the, the intelligence officer goes, gentlemen, may I have your attention? This morning we have quite a show. And then he pulls back the curtain to reveal a large map with a plotted route, you know, with a little sort of red yeah. red thread going across it. It's Schweinfurt again. Son of a bitch! This is my 25th mission! What the hell are you crying about? This is my first! There you go. <laughs> Which is what happens. Um, you know, so the silence, and then, then, then all the bitching and groans and whistles and all the rest of it. But McLaughlin's kind of, you know, he goes, okay, well, it's Schweinfurt, but, but, you know, he's an old hand at this point. So what he's much more interested in is, you know, what, what's the intelligence brief on this? You know, what can they expect? What's the route? What's the likely enemy? What's the, what's the likely escort going to be? And at this point, the intelligence officer then gives a full briefing. So, so P-47s would escort them to the Ruhr. Well, great over the bit where there's not many Germans to worry about. Uh, and then they'd be on their way, their own, until the return leg when the Thunderbolts would rejoin them northeast of Paris. Oh, at well, which, point, at right which then. point the Luftwaffe piss off. I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's sort of complete points. In other words, they've got 400 miles each way and 200, two hours of flying on their own each leg. So that's four hours of flying, whatever. No, uh, two hours of flying. Two hours on their own. Jim, that's plenty. That's that's plenty, yeah, yeah, yeah. So over the target, this is what they can expect. 380 anti-aircraft guns firing 12 rounds per minute. So that equates to 50,000 shells in the main formation from the start of the IP, which is the initial point. So the initial point is the point on their kind of map, so sort of imaginary moment in the in part in the sky where they start the bomb run. And at the bomb run, what you have to do is you hand a pilot hands over control to the bombardier who's in the nose in the case of the um, of the B seventeen and, and switches over to the automatic pilot. And the automatic pilot keeps the plane trimmed and throttled at a certain level so it can fly straight and level. Because obviously, when you're actually releasing your bombs, you need to be as as calm and 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 straight and and level as you can possibly be. This is a, an in-theatre innovation because bombing accuracy hasn't been what it should be. So the idea is that one guy aims so they all aim together rather than everyone yes. has a punt. Right, exactly that. Exactly that has that. not been working. And they're flying straight and level. The Germans eventually, in response to that change in tactic, now fire 
like a predicted box of um, ACAT fire, don't they? Yes. So yeah. they're not trying to shoot individual aircraft down. They're just trying to create a, a, like a box of flak that they know that the Americans will have to fly. All exploding at different heights. All exploding at different heights in predicted patterns. So roughly, so say for argument's sake, it would be between sort of 17,000 and 22,000 feet over a, a stretch of, say, you know, two miles or something, whatever it is, of three miles, five miles maybe. Over where they know they're going to be flying straight and level. Because the first time the Americans fly straight and level it on the bomb aimer, don't they? It completely bamboozles the Germans and they aren't up to it. But... The thing that we'll keep coming back to is that there's ceaseless, relentless adaptation, responsive adaptation. And lit- I mean, it's literally evolution, because if you fail, you die. And if you don't evolve, you die. So it's literally how evolution, e- evolution in action this, but conceptually. Absolutely. Evolution. So in addition to the 50,000 shells and 380 um, anti-aircraft guns, they're also likely to be met by 700 single-engine fighters and 400 twin-engine. So, Jim, just remind everyone how many how many aircraft are flying to Schweinfurt? Like three hundred and something. So they're outnumbered. Three to one, four to one, at least. Four to one, yeah, yep, 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 yep. And the ninety second bomb group is going to be um, is to lead their wing, which is part of the first division. So the eighth air force is divided into three divisions: first, second, third. Second is 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 B twenty four Liberators, and the first and third are, are B seventeen. And Fame's favoured few is going to be the lead ship. At this point, Colonel Bud Peasley is introduced. Now he's the former commanding officer Hi, of the three hundred eighty. How you doing, Bud Peasley? How you, how you doing, guys? How you doing, um, guys? Uh, and he's the former CEO of the three hundred eighty fourth Bomb Group and now chief of staff of the fortieth Wing. I used to be the commanding officer of the three hundred eighty fourth. <laughs> I thought, I, and now I'm, I'm chief of staff of the fortieth Wing. I want to come on the party. There you go. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't talk like that at all. Does he not? <laughs> no, no, no. He he. he, he I used to be the uh, CEO of the 384th <laughs> Bomb Group, but now okay. I am Chief of Staff of the 40th Wing. Okay, fine. Uh, no, well, he's, a, he's a, anyway. That's even better. <laughs> he's, not, he's not from New Jersey. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Anyway, no, he's from Virginia. Um, oh, right. Okay. Uh, or Connecticut or something. Um, right. Anyway, he's going to be flying as <laughs> McLaughlin's second pilot. So the cloud is still bad. Why, though? He wants to come along? Yeah, he wants to come along. Right. Wants to check it all out. You know, so is that you know is is McLaughlin's co-pilot like basically high fiving himself in the Nissan hut at this moment? No, he ends up being the tail gunner. Right. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's not very happy either. Um, so, so the cloud is still really bad, but but they you know they've got to carry on and assuming it's all going to be right up to the wire. McLaughlin's hoping it's going to be scrubbed, but it isn't. Uh, um, Captain Harry Hughes is his navigator. Lieutenant Ed O'Grady is the bombardier. Uh, and when they get and when these officers all get to the um, get to their fort. McLaughlin gets on board, looks at all the crew. They've all got kind of incredibly long faces. No one knows. Everyone, no one wants to do this. Everyone knows that this might be their kind of, sort of last last time on, you know, on planet Earth, um, on ground anyway. It's 1010 cloud, but they go anyway. You know, it's all been planned. They're going to go it, even though the conditions are against them, even though the enemy forces are against them. They're going to go because they've just got to press on. And so at 12 minutes past 10 in the morning, the signal to begin goes, engines whirring into life. Fame favoured few, as it's the lead ship, opens the throttles, 50 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour, and then around 100 miles an hour, it's easing into the air, very heavily laden, lots of fuel, lots of bombs. 
two and a half tons of bombs, climbs up through the cloud, praying they're not going to crash into someone else. But as a lead ship in their area, obviously that makes their, their chances a little bit better. They merge into the clear at about 7,000 feet. 7,000 feet in a very, very heavy B-17. It's not something that takes, you know, that takes a little while to, yeah, yeah, to reach yeah, yeah. that height. So you've got some yeah. very, very anxious moments to start off with. Everyone feeling tense, hearts beating, pumping, and all the rest of it. Circle around, form up, and off they go. See the the P forty sevens, the Thunderbolts, yep. the escorts over the channel. Forming up is really important, Jim, because the the, yeah. the way they operate tactically is based on the idea that they form up. Yes, in a tight formation. It's exactly like a ship convoy. Yeah, but if you if you so if you set off with your former formation a bit ragged, you're already. And this is before we argue about whether the tactic works or not. Right, you've already got anxiety built into your formation, haven't you? You've got pilots looking yep. over their shoulders. You've got him as the lead bomber, thinking, "Am I going to have to throttle back because Bud at the back on the back right hand corner isn't keeping up?" Yeah, you know, or am I going to have to, you know, am I going too slowly and and, and the, we're, we're in danger of lagging behind the holding the whole formation up? So, so there's all the formation flying, which of course bomber command have completely abandoned. Ages ago, they fly in a stream, don't they? They they, yep. they they don't bother forming up. There's no point. It doesn't help anyone. It's nope. too difficult because they're doing it at night, which is effectively like trying to do it in cloud. The way the Americans are planning to fight relies on the formation. And if the formation isn't formed up properly, obviously you're you're worrying about that as much as anything else. So, I mean, the, the, the responsibility on someone like McLaughlin's shoulders as as lead pilot. I, I mean, it's how old is he? It's worth just stressing that the whole point of these formations is that you are you're tight together, and that you are rather like the box that's of barrage that's coming up, a flak coming towards you. You are also presenting a box of you know, say you're three hundred three hundred and fifteen aircraft times thirteen machine guns. You know, and that is supposed in theory to make you impregnable. But key to that is not straggling. It's not kind of lagging behind. It's keeping that incredibly tight formation and making sure you're going pretty quickly so that if a fighter if a fighter wants to intercept you he's got to be really going some and he's got to climb fast to get above you and all that sort of thing and you but, know, but obviously the, when you've got 315 uh, you know 330 aircraft going through through thick cloud up to 7000 feet and 10 tenths cloud means that basically there is no gap in the in the cloud whatsoever 10 tenths cloud means that the whole sky that you can see in your immediate environment from for as far as you can see is covered in cloud so that's a blanket, a, a complete blanket, basically, is what that means. So kind of eight temps means, you know, sort of almost, but but there's little gaps of of sunlight. But 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 they get they the, get to France. The, yeah. They cross the channel. They get to France. The thunderbolts get to the edge of France. The little thunderbolts little, bugger off. Little friends, yeah, bye. disappear almost immediately. German fighters turn up. So yes, yeah, so the co-pilot is Lieutenant Augustus Arnholtz, Lute, and Lieutenant he, Jim. I mean, we're, Lieutenant we're, Lieutenant yeah, yeah. Augustus Arnholtz. Large formation approaching at five o'clock. Um, he calls out almost immediately, and and it's a gaggle of ME110s, which are twin-engine fighter aircraft. The Zerstora, the destroyer, and and the the 110s pass them on their starboard side. That's right hand side, and then you know. I mean, almost making a mockery of the formation. They just sort of glide past them, overtake them, go on, and then turn. And so the, the Luftwaffe technique by this stage of the war is to do head-on attacks. That is where they've discovered that the, the bombers are their uh, most vulnerable, is you just go straight at the pilot, and you're just shooting head-on, and you, you go like you're going, going to have a head-on collision, and then you glide over the top of them. That's basically what you what you do. As soon as they do that, there's flak, puffs, bangs, clatter of shut. Because what happens is, is you know, an anti-aircraft gun is is 
programmed to explode, detonate at a certain point, which is how you can have these box barrages. And obviously, when it explodes, bits of metal fly everywhere. Now, if you're going, you know, you can be kind of 100 yards away and you'll get clattered by little bits of metal. Now, sometimes these go in, sometimes they don't. But, you know, you're, the blast of it also froze the, it, it's a bit like sort of heavy turbulence, you know, so you're being knocked about as a... Well, and a red hot fragment going into your radial engine, it doesn't need a big chunk of metal. It's, you know, something going, something hot going very, very fast will cut through an aluminium aircraft fuselage just like that and certainly cut through a person. But um, anyway, so they, they're attacked and they've lost fifth, five of the 16 ships from this 110 attack. This particular group. This yep. particular thing. So uh, on they go, still only south of the Ruhr. There's another <laughs> mass attack of one, 110s coming. I mean, of course, you know, everyone knows the ME 110 in the Battle of Britain has proved to be flabby and useless compared to um, intercept fighters like, like the Spitfire and the Hurricane, right? Even the even the old Mark One Spitfire, um, friend of the show. Um, but the the point is, is the one one zero is is entirely entirely up to this job yes, of, of shooting down something bigger and slower than itself, and it's much more heavily armed as well because it's flying with cannon, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so you don't need agility when you're flying against a uh, you know you don't need to be doing bomb, for, bomb formation and, that's trying not that's not going to, to take evasive action. That's the other thing. They are not going to take evasive action. It, it, or anyway, very little evasive action. Or, or as little as they possibly can, because it'll disrupt the formation, it'll disrupt the bomb pattern, it'll disrupt the point of the raid. Anyway, yeah. so another lot come in, and then 109s join in. Yep. The fort on their right is, is piloted by Major George Ott, and McLaughlin notices that in Ott's ship, uh, first one engine's on fire, then a second, the B-17 falls back, Nine parachutes, he sees, but Ott, the pilot, is still flying on. And whether that he may have been killed, he might not have been killed. He might have been. He might jump out later, but that's the last that McLaughlin sees of him. So he, you know, who knows? That's that. Um, yeah, but then, but you know, that's that's one on their immediate right has gone. Yeah. Then two Ju eighty eight are called by Sergeant Edison in the top turret, and they so they take evasive action, and two rockets explode where they've been because the Germans are firing firing rockets into the bomber formations, which, which again, I think is a sign of how, how a great big static formation of bombers maybe, maybe offers you a target you don't need necessarily sharp shooting for, is the, is the other thing. I mean, that's the, you know, the, we're going to we're gonna get to how they've ended up flying like this eventually. Sergeant Van Horn then calls out that Lieutenant Clough's fort has been hit, is on fire. A wing then blew off. Two parachutes. More yep, MEM-1-1s. So presumably have gone down. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And they're nowhere near Schweinfurt. Because Schweinfurt, after all, is an hour is another hour on from the from the Ruhr, isn't it? So Peasley, <laughs> having joined this uh, come for the joyride, turns to McLaughlin and says, "Captain, I think we've had it." Yeah, he's Clint Eastwood. Yeah, exactly, Captain. I think I we've think had we've it. had it. And McLaughlin has never felt ready. more scared exactly. in his life. <laughs> he orders the he orders the formation to close up. One of the uh, orders the group to everyone to close up. One formation of sixteen only has four aircraft left in it. So eight gone already. I mean, that's just amazing, isn't it? No, what's that? Twelve gone. The box isn't working and it doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it's it's horrendous. Then they get to get the skies clear and they get to Schweinfurt. Because what happens is these these fighter these fighter attacks come in waves. Yeah. You yeah. Know, because they've only got limited fuel, particularly the 109s. 
Uh, and so they they might attack for kind of 20 minutes, something like that, and then they go off to their bases again. And so then you have a kind of comparatively clear run. But obviously, the moment you get to the t- closer to the target, by this point, you know, the Germans are tracking every movement. Because it's one big solid block, it's very easy to follow on radar and, ob- and indeed by observers because you're taking a massive stretch of the sky so everyone can see you, but not maybe not if it's 10 times cloud over this part. But, but, but do you know what I mean? I mean, it, it's quite easy to track. So they can expect more fighters when they get to Schweinfurt. Yeah, exactly. So I mean they've they've run a gauntlet already. They get yep. Schweinfurt. Then there's there's lots of flak, but mercy of mercies, it's not accurate. Of course, the fighters in the meantime they've gone to refuel, have a cup of coffee, and get ready to come back, haven't they? It's the it's the real point. So if the flak's accurate or not, it doesn't matter. Also, the bomber force has been degraded to the point where they're going to drop some bombs. But how bad's it going to go? And also, the Germans are, are well in the habit of being bombed now, so they've got plenty of measures in place. And the Americans also. Compared to what bomber commander dropping are dropping lighter bombs, they're not their bomb payloads are nowhere near as sophisticated as bomber bomber commands are by this stage of the war. So they're not necessarily dropping a thing that blows a roof off that then they can rain incendiaries in, like bomber command did in July in Hamburg, where they've got a sophisticated combined bombing. You know, basically the British are much are much more bloodthirsty about this entire thing at this stage of the war. Anyway, they get there. No one's no one speaks. Okay, great, O'Grady, it's all yours. He hands over he hands over control of the aircraft to the to the bombardier, which I think is the most. Ima- I always think this is incredible that actually that's how it. That's you how s- it works. you switch on the AFCE, which is the automatic flight control equipment, which is effectively kind of sort of you know automatic pilot, and and this means that he can use the Norden bomb site, which is an incredibly sophisticated kit, and more of that later um, as they fly over. But, but but one of the problems is 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 that you the pilot still has you know it's not like you can take sort of forty winks during this moment. There they are, the ball bearing plant bombs away. Says O'Grady, and then McLaughlin says, "We've flown this far for Uncle Sam. From here, we fly to the U.S. for us." And and this is a line that is absolutely lifted one hundred percent into Memphis Bell. Oh, fair enough. It's an amazing but, line. You know, it also, but it was McLaughlin who said it originally. But I'm sure quite a few people said it. To be fair, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah. the moment they turn off, I mean, the good thing is, is that once you once you have dropped your bombs, you can forget any more flying straight and level. You can climb higher if you want to. You can, you're lighter, so you're faster. So on paper, you have a few advantages that you didn't have on the run in. But the flip side of that is your formation is less. It's less, you know, cohesively together because you're turning and you've done the run and you've been through the flak and all the rest of it. So you're still incredibly, you're, you're still incredibly vulnerable. And, you know, two minutes, <laughs> literally two minutes in there, kind of, the, you know, they're, they're left alone for kind of 10 minutes, but then the enemy turn up again and it's kind of yet more fighters attacking them. And by this point, you know, 10 minutes into the return leg, McLaughlin reckons that at least half their force is gone as far as he can see. And they're still one hour thirty eight minutes from when their little friends are, uh, are rejoining, which is the fighter planes. But but you know, on they go, repeated t- attacks. But miraculously, they're they're lucky that day. Um, over France, enemy fighters broke off, but then there's absolutely no sign of the Thunderbolts whatsoever. And it turns out that they've been grounded by fog, so they haven't even got escorts on the way back. Uh, and of course, that's doubly bad because not only are they not protected by the fighters on the final bit. The reason that they're not there is because it's fog, and the fog they then have to land through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at least when you're taking off, you know, you know, as long as you keep climbing, you're gonna, uh, uh, you're gonna emerge into the clear. But the problem is with, with when you're go- descending into fog, you don't know where the land is. I mean, you've got your artificial horizon, you've got your altimeter and everything, but 
you know, how reliable is that? So eventually they make it back to Poddington via radio fixes. A long, tough, soul-searching day. What's the butcher's bill, as we put it, before we go to the break? Well, uh, the 305th bomb group loses 13 out of 16. The 306th bomb group loses 10 out of 18. The 97th, 379th and 384th bomb groups all lose six crews. In total, 60 fortresses, uh, which is exactly the same number that was lost on Schweinfurt 1. Exactly the same number. And 594 men either killed in action or missing in action, and 40, in addition to that, wounded in action. Uh, A further seven fortresses are written off and 138 damaged. Uh, And the truth of the matter is, is that the Mighty Ape has lost 148 bombers in the seven days of operations up to Black Thursday, which is getting on for kind of a half their forces, certainly kind of two-fifths. Incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, th- that is catastrophic levels. It's absolutely, absolutely catastrophic. But Kent McLaughlin does live to see another day. Oh, brilliant. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back to... How they've got to this point, really. How they got to this point and how this point is digested. We'll see you in a tip. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We've just done the Schweinfurt 2 raid. Um, we hope that was as uh, hair-raising it ought to be. I mean, it is... <laughs> oh, it's just terrifying just, to think about it. Horrendous. It's horrendous. I mean, really it's, that's it's Charge of the Light horrendous. Brigade stuff, isn't it, Jim? Uh, Every really? single time, yes. But but people who were on the Charge of the Light Brigade did it once. Yes, that's true. You know, true. these guys have to do it 25 times, unless they're killed beforehand. If obviously. they're lucky, they get to do it 25 times, yeah. So, Eka's the Commander-in-Chief of 8th Air Force. Apparently pronounced Acre. Really? Oh, we, we Brits want to call him Eka, but apparently it's Acre. Ira Acre. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll and accept that. And he's based in High Wycombe, which is, after all, he, he ends up there originally um, so that he's cheap by Jalwood Bomber Command because he needs to, when he f- arrives in the UK, he needs to pick their brains. He needs to speak to them about their experience and, you know, draw what he can from it. And he's got it, obviously, they've got, the Americans have got their own ideas that they're very much 
they're very much into it. Um, it's also it's it's well placed actually because it's about you know yeah, it's about yeah. forty miles from London, north northwest of London. Yeah, yeah. So that means you're easy access to London if you need to get there, but also it's easy access for him to get to his airfields in the Midlands and East Anglia. You know, it's 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 it's, it's very well placed. It's actually the it, it was before Wickham Abbey Girls School, and subsequently became returned as Wickham Abbey Girls School. But but it was codenamed Pine Tree. Pine Tree. That's right. Yeah. So there's photos. Acre and Ferret Anderson, Anderson. Um, Ferret. <laughs> Fred Anderson. It's Ferret. It's Ferret. Ferret. Ferret Anderson. I like yeah, it. Yeah, no, that's just my, t- Acre, my type. Acre and Fred Anderson. Um, <laughs> Acre's, well, he's got photos to look at it. So he's, he's um, analyzing the photos. And he, I mean, th- they tell the world. I think what's really amazing about this is that, I mean, we've just gone through the cost and how, how bad things are for, for 8th Air Force. But they... Tell Hap Arnold the truth, don't they? And General Hap Arnold, who's who's the next fellow up the food chain, who's in Washington. Well, he's the he's the commander in chief of the army. Air Force. Exactly, but 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 they they tell him, don't they, that all yeah. three of the buildings have been destroyed. Yeah. Right. Um, Arnold is then prepared, happy to go out and say Schweinfurt has been completely destroyed. Right. But they know they know that they can't lose fortresses at this rate and because they're losing 250 forts and crews per month at minimum and they they say we must show the enemy we can replace our losses he knows he cannot replace his we must continue the battle with unrelenting fury right so they're on the horns of a, a, a big dilemma here because they they know they have to do that they know how difficult that is but they also have to paint the picture that this is working in order to be able to replace their losses yes but you can you can see the doubt in that can't you already oh completely you, you know if you you know Ira Aker is a really good man he, he's he's a good man he, you know he, he's he's clever he's said well we'll get on to him in a minute but I mean he knows it's he's, pure he's, projection that we must show the enemy we can re- replace our losses you know we, we need to find out if the enemy can replace their losses. We're not sure if he can replace his. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the bombing was pretty accurate, but you know, only four hundred eighty-two tons of bombs were dropped, and and you know, a large part of that doesn't hit the Kugelfischer plant because, well, however big the Kugelfischer plant is, it's not that huge. You know, from eighteen thousand to twenty-two thousand feet, it's pretty small, and, and it's really hard to kind of hit something at that, even with the sophistication of kind of northern bomb sites and artificial. Um, autopilots and all the rest of it and it is true that output falls by 67 percent. but but you know they've already got dispersal factories uh which is sort of shadow fa- what, what what the british called shadow factories which is this idea is you have the main plant but then you have little sub plants all over the place and they're dispersed all over the place and they're smaller and they're harder to hit and this is a byproduct of the fact that the you know that germans have been being bombed for you know two three years now and they're they're working out what they need to do to mitigate the the damage that can be done. Well, yes, and there's also there's also a sort of slight question mark over kind of you know it's priorities of target, and, and and absolutely you want to destroy the the Luftwaffe, you want to destroy the aircraft industry, but actually what the Luftwaffe is building in vast numbers at this point is is fighters, not bombers, because actually a fighter, although it's an aggressive aircraft, is a defensive aircraft, whereas a bomber is an aggressive aircraft, although it's a kind of you know, feels feels more lumbering. Uh, um, so that's a kind of sort of the paradox of that. But 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 actually, fighters don't require as many ball bearings. So there's a, it's a sort of question mark over whether this is a sensible target anyway. And this is all as a result of twenty interwar arguments within the American air establishment about what what you should attack. And the tension between thinkers and the projection of how air strategy is going to play out, and the reality once they're confronted with it, and and you know you cannot blame people. 
I don't think, too hardly for projecting in the 1930s a vision of air power because you've got, obviously you've got to prepare for the future. But but the future is unknowable. You, you, you can only use make, make assessments for your best of your, your judgment. They're tangled in the – there's a lot of politics around it too, isn't it? Because there's a, a lot of people who are not interested in the idea of bombing what they regard as civilian areas. Um, you've, you've also – there's been a prohibition on the American air – establishment for for examining for doing any intelligence on how the german economy works at all yes that is absolutely true they make a study of their own economy and extrapolate from their study of the american economy how the german economy must work and of course it's it's a bit different and you know so they're, they're hampered by that so once the war begins and they're starting to digest the intelligence that the british have got on the german economy and and trying to sort of get their thinking around how that works ball bearings sort of pop up as a what of course Harris over in Bomber Command would call it a panacea targets, but, but ball bearings. You know, when when you when, when we talked about it earlier, you, we said every axle needs a ball bearing. If you pitch it, it's it's um it's a pretty good idea, isn't it? So those, what you're saying is those targets are being chosen through the prism of American industry rather than German industry. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but but it's interesting. I think it's worth looking at R. Acre because because although he's he's not the most important person in the chain, he is the commander in chief of the mighty eighth of the eighth Air Force, uh, and he is. Although what he is doing is is projecting a wide-held view amongst the air power elites in the United States Armed Forces, he is very much the intellectual driving force behind the current strategy. And it's worth looking at him. So he, he's he's only forty seven in October nineteen forty three. Um, he's balding, but he's um you know he's a handsome chap. He's got dark eyes. You know he's pretty square jawed. He's resolute. He's brought up in rural Texas. Um, comes from a very humble background, but he's but he's clever. He's really really smart. Joins the army, becomes an officer, uh, and then there's a point where where um, he's at their um, he's at the parade ground for the 64th Infantry to whom he's attached at El Paso in Texas. When suddenly a plane comes in, and the plane is spluttering and all the rest of it, and the and the pilot doesn't know what to do, but Aiken knows his way around an engine. And realizes that all he needs to do is change a couple of spark plugs. So he changes the spark plugs and the pilot's on his way. But before the pilot gets on his way, he goes, goes hey, you know, you're, you're good at this stuff. You know, have you ever thought about, about joining the, the aviation section of the Signal Corps? And Aker thinks, well, that sounds like fun. Um, you know, I quite fancy being a pilot and getting into aviation. So he switches and he becomes quite a pioneer. You know, the, the, all it's really interesting. All those, the lead aviator, you know, leading air commanders in the, in the United States Army Air Force by, you know, middle of the war. They've all been pioneers in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, Hap Arnold was taught to fly by the Wright brothers. There you are. There you are. I mean, what, what, do, what do you need? Acre's time when he, you know, when, when, he get, when he gets to grips with being an airman is really fascinating because mm. one of the requirements, uh, <laughs> and I, I really love this, is one of the requirements um, <laughs> at the uh, Air Corps <laughs> College is that you have to do um, 25 hours of equine stable management. And you have to do <laughs> okay. an hour's horseback riding every morning from 7.15 to 8.15. It's required. Okay. Why? Because that's just the way it's been set up, all right? And uh, yeah. the riding requirement, you know, they spend more time on horseback than they do addressing themselves to air logistics and stuff like that. It's, Tammy Davis-Biddle is very funny about this. The riding, riding requirement was increasingly resented as the years passed. <laughs> and, and there's uh, Lieutenant Colonel E.L. Hoffman writes the school's commandant in 1935 saying, I've never liked a horse nor admired one except at a safe distance. I fail to see the horses <laughs> have any place in the science of aviation. 
His, 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 his request is denied. And then in the Air Corps newsletter, Aker himself explains the pleasant present class has suffered five major casualties from riding to date, including broken bones, an arm, a leg, and miscellaneous ribs. God, it seems absolutely mad. There's considerable agitation on the part of the present class to make riding optional. <laughs> the and they do eventually, ca- presumably. Well, the student council has recommended that the tactical school cavalry be placed high on the army's priority list for early mechanisation. <laughs> <laughs> God, you, are, you, you know, you think the British army is the one stuck in the mud? I mean, honestly. Well, isn't that interesting? Because, isn't because it? you know, you've talked about Sherwood Range Yeomanry being on horseback in Palestine in 1939. Yeah, you know, and by the end of the war, they're totally total mechanised bad boys. There's Ira Aker sat on some ponies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> looking, looking wistfully up at the sky. Yeah, going, exactly. Come on, guys, we've got to do this hours riding. Then we can talk. <laughs> then we can talk about precision bombing. Then we can bombing. get into our kites. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's absolutely amazing. Anyway, so so Aker, Aker, like a lot of these guys, does a lot of sort of pioneering work, and they're real adventurers, and, and you know, unbelievably yeah. courageous because this is the first time things have been happened. So his yeah. with his with his great mate Bill Kepner, um, he becomes the first pilot to fly blind across the US. Absolutely so instruments amazing. only hood over the, the hood canopy. on the canopy. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, incredible. That, you know, that requires sort of nerves of steel to do that. So it's not yeah. you know, when they're commanding these guys and sending them into battle in nineteen forty three, you know, it's it's not like they haven't been tested in terms of sort of courage and, and personal bravery themselves. They absolutely yeah. have. And, and and by nineteen thirty nine he is uh, Acre is in Washington as the XO, which is the executive officer, which is sort of effectively second in command or sort of chief, you know, number two, to, to Major General Hap Arnold, who at that point is the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Army Air Corps, is it then? It's not an Air Force at that point. Uh, and Brigadier General Carl Tui Spots um, is the chief of staff. So that makes Acre effectively number three. And he's also collaborated on a very successful book with, with um, General Arnold, um, Hap Arnold, uh, called winged warfare which has actually done very well and and again is a kind of sort of you know this is this is a kind of a vision of the future of what are you know what air power is going to be like and all the rest of it yeah, yeah. Um, and he's, he's studied uh, the spanish civil war with with arnold as well they've got another book called this flying game which they've written together where obviously yes. um air combat and where the question of what you do with your air power is is played out in public so do you use it as a tactical air force because because it is used as tactical air power by by the Germans with the with the nationalists, or do you use it as f- for bombing towns? Guernica famously being the the globally famous example, and so that hmm. that's what they're looking at, and they're collab that as you say they're right. So they're writing books together, they're doing their thinking together. So everyone's hugger mugger on intellectually on, on on the tasks ahead, the tasks that they ho- well they don't hope they imagine they expect. You know, yes. because after all, a big thing they're up against. This is all theoretical at the point. It's all theoretical and they're seen as warmongers. If they say, by the way, we may have to bomb somewhere, in isolationist America, it's not its not the easiest of wickets to be defending, is it? Is the, is yeah, 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 yeah. Or even sketching yeah. out or even inventing. I mean, it's its extraordinary. Anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I, I think, you know, leading off what you just said, I mean, you know, air power is in, in the 1920s and 30s, you know, a huge amount of thought has been given to this by the men in the comparatively very small US Army Air Corps. But these guys know they're this little sort of band of brothers. And they, you know, regardless of, of how isolationist America is, at some point they might be called upon and they've got to think about this stuff. And, and, and also they're arguing um, that it's a, they're arguing it's a cheaper way of defending America's coast absolutely. naval power. 
cheaper and less and less costly in terms of men's lives you know because although we always sort of think it's france and britain that have been completely damaged by the um by uh, and the duke forces that have been damaged by the first world war don't underestimate how much the losses in 1918 have affected uh, american public opinion and it's one of the reasons why they've led to you know isolationism and all the rest of it you know and everyone is very mindful that you cannot have the slaughter of the trenches again you know that has to be avoided at all cost well and the, the but there is a bomb, there are bomber campaigns that people can can examine. And so the British and the French have attempted to bomb Germany in different different ways, shapes, and forms. And the Germans, of course, have bombed Britain. And there are some conclusions you could draw from those bombing campaigns that, of course, that sort of hang heavy. And Trenchardian doctrine, the founder of the Royal Air Force, right, who's the guy who turns takes the RFC and turns it into its own arm um, on April the first, nineteen eighteen. His thing is total the total offensive all the time that you're at the enemy the entire time. With you, lots of bombers. You, lots of bombers, and you, you push, 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 push. And that's a very attractive idea to, to this bomber mafia that develops. They really love that idea. But yeah. the reality of the of the bomber camp, you know, for instance, the bombing campaign over Britain in the First World War is that the pursuit fighters, interceptor fighters, defending fighter aircraft, force that campaign to, to work at night. Because yep. daytime is too difficult. Because the fighter ends up quicker than the bomber and able to overwhelm the bomber no matter how well the bomber can defend itself. And so what's really interesting is they look at that, they see that, that's the example. And the British are also the British are also chewing on that gristle at the same time. Yep. And the Americans conclude, actually, no, you know what? A fast enough, high-flying enough, well-defended enough bomber is is actually the answer. Yeah, and there's two people we should mention here. We should we should mention Giulio Duhay. Who is, yeah, yeah. is the Italian thinker who writes Command of the Air uh, in 1921? Uh, and it becomes this, this incredibly influential kind of treatise on, on the future of air power, which is all about bombing. But in the United States, it's Billy Mitchell. Um, yeah. So Billy Mitchell um, ends the First <laughs> World War as a commander of the US Army um, Air Operations. And then post war becomes assistant chief of the air service. And he's incredibly outspoken and he, he absolutely zealously believes in in the importance of air power, of bombers, and is really, really against any kind of isolationism whatsoever. Not not so much isolationism in terms of foreign policy, but isolationism in, in, in terms of not providing sufficient defence for the nation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's his big point. He's not, he's not a warmonger. He's just saying we need to be prepared. And he's so outspoken, he actually accuses the War and Navy Departments of treason for not yeah, taking no, the build-up of air power seriously enough, and then gets, gets court-martialed. He gets court-martialed. His career's over. Resigns from the air service. Um, he continues to rant and rave, but he, you know it breaks him, um, and he dies very young in 1936. But Mitchell's preachings are um, absolutely haven't fallen on deaf ears, and they become very much the kind of baseline for this emerging new leadership within the United States Army Air Corps of Spots, of Acre, of men like Jimmy Doolittle, Barney Giles, um, these kind of guys, and of course Ira Acre himself, who absolutely are taking the United States Army Air Corps into the new war that emerges in September 1939. Well, and part of the tension within the debate in America is that the, the Hague Conventions of, of, of 1922-23, when, that's when, they, when they're drafted, get stuck on the definitions of what com- constitutes a legitimate military target in an age of total war. And so this debate that Mitchell's trying to propel in public runs into, r- r- obviously, inevitably, and you know we see it today, runs into that 
question. What is a legitimate military target in a time of total war? If your aim is to eliminate the enemy, and they they do conclude that what they've got to do is eliminate the opposing air force, because that's Trenchard's thing too, is that you eliminate the enemy's air force and then you have freedom of action, is the idea. But basically, they get stuck on this. And from this comes... The, the need for the Norden bomb site and for precision, what precision bombing, which is the thing that, that, that is essentially, if you if you want a, a two word thing to hang on the American campaign, and you can hang it on as an intention or an ironic label, you can address the American campaign through those two words, and that's precision bombing. Discuss could be the title of this of this series of series of podcasts. They really do think they really can do that. They really do want to do that intentionally. Well, you see, you see these ideas developing over the course of the nineteen twenties. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but that's the sort of, but the, all those ideas that sort of arrive at the uh, through the prism. And I think what's so interesting about this, Duet wasn't talking about precision bombing, and of course, there's no. no, there's no, there's no evidence that any of these people actually read him. He just he put bombing into the into the ether as the idea to discuss for the next war. Yes, yes, but it's just, uh, it's so fascinating how they how they come to this conclusion, though, isn't it? Because the conclusion the conclusion of high level precision daylight bombing comes at the end of the nineteen thirties, and you've yeah. got this you've got this sort of little hub of the Air Corps, this this tiny little component of the United States Armed Forces, which by their which are also with the Navy accepted, you know, the Army is also tiny in the nineteen twenties, and this is all based at Langley Field in Virginia, and it's the Air Service Tactical School, which is founded in nineteen twenty, becomes the, the the Air Corps Tactical School in nineteen twenty six. This is effectively the Air college and all these guys are passing through this area they're all meeting each other flying going horse riding whatever but but they're also kind of doing lots of chit chat and, and one of the kind of the divergent views is from claire Chenot, um yeah, yeah. who she's fascinating famous as as the flying tigers Tiger, mercenary yeah. force in china in chiang kai-shek's china in, in, in 1937 onwards but he is a he's a pursuit man uh, and and fighter planes in america are called pursuit planes which is why they have the uh, the prefix p p 47 p 38 p 51 all the rest of it it comes from comes from from that nomenclature and his his tenets are one that the pursuit aircraft always can stop bombers if there's enough of them and given enough warning and that bombers flying deep into enemy territory need friendly fighter escort on both things he is absolutely well, correct he says he says, Jim, he observes that the bomber ought not to be made the first exception to the ancient principle that for every weapon there is a new and effective counterweapon. He's absolutely, He's bang absolutely on the money. right. And I think what's so interesting is that for a very long time, and you know, we'll see why, because you know, the aircraft the aircraft that makes this all makes this thinking all seem to make sense when it comes along is is an extraordinary bit of kit. In in nineteen thirty-six, they cling on to the idea that the bomber and it's more than Stanley Baldwin saying the bomber will always get through. They're basically saying, we found a way for the bomber to always get through. And this bomber will always get through. This bomber with this equipment. And this is what's coming out in the 19, 1930s. And, it, and it's fascinating because Cheno is listened to because they obviously they do have fighter planes. They and, do and nevertheless commission plane. fighter aircraft. Yeah, pursuit planes. Oh, they do. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's not, it's not as if it's, if it's without. But, but the, the preeminence of the bomber over the pursuit aircraft absolutely comes to fore and and you know cheno gets so fed up with with not not being listened to or, or seemingly not being listened to that eventually he does go off to china in 1937 but by this point you you're, you know you're absolutely bang on i mean you know what they're doing is they're developing this tech this this technological advancement yeah but in an ideological environment that's a resu result of a, of a vacuum of any experience and and there there is there is an experience of bombing but they've gone no no, no we've solved that problem 
we've solved that problem. And in their debate, they're going, they say, if, if bombing missions have been flown properly, and Trenchard says this too, if bombing missions have been flown properly, then they would have had the effect. If they, you know, if only it had been committed to properly in the first world, it would, would have worked better. And the, the, well, that's what we can learn from, that's what we can learn from that experience is it wasn't done properly, which is a little like people, you know, the Soviet Union going, well, it wasn't, socialism wasn't done properly. You never get the you never get the perfect which is which, which is where you end up with ideology when there's mm. when there's literally a vacuum of experience um, exactly to, dr to draw on. Uh, yep. But I, I mean, I think what's really you struck on something really really interesting there because the bomber the bomber people think they're hard done by and think they can't get their way, and yet if you're a pursuit guy within the <laughs> yes. U.S. Army Air Corps, you are you think you're not getting your way, and you are not prioritized. So, so there's this very peculiar distortion that people running the, actually running the US Army Air Corps and then the US Army Air Force, they are in favor of the bomber. They, yes. they actually have won the, they've won the argument. It's the, then the argument of the execution that, that, that becomes the, becomes a problem. And yet they portray themselves as the people always having to make the argument who've lost the argument and have got to yeah, do yeah. ceaseless advocacy. But actually they've, by the time the war begins, they have won. The bomber people have won the argument, which I think they really have, but, but they've been able to do this through the advancement of technology. And what we normally yeah, yeah. think is we normally think of it is wars that, that accelerate technological yes. development. What is really interesting about America and the, and the and isolationist America in the 1920s and 1930s is that it is, America's um, technological advancement and, and commercial advancement, um, civilian commercial advancement in the 1920s particularly, but then into the 1930s, that leads them to the bomber mafia, the bomber men, to, 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 to develop the way they do. Because what is happening is commercial civilian um, aviation is taking on a huge leap. Well, safer than safer than military aviation, and there's a scandal within the within the Army Air Corps about that. That crash rates and unreliability are, are off the charts compared to commercial aviation. So yes, so yes, so so, so you've you, so you've got you know you've got the automobile industry, you've got you've got you know um, the genuine mass civil, production as well, genuine 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 civil aviation production, and and what that's le that's leading to is is the death of the biplane and the development of the stressed metal aluminium and aluminium monoplane. And out of that comes remarkable aircraft that, that are starting to emerge in the 1930s, and not least the the, the Boeing 247, which, which first flies in 1933. It's got retractable undercarriage, can fly at 200 miles an hour. The DC-3 comes in, in 1936. You know, and anyone looking at these aircraft is looking at a vision of the future. You know, they're stressed metal, they're silvery, they kind of twinkle in the sunlight as they fly over California. The DC three has, you know, swept wings, swept back wings, and all the rest of it. Yes, yeah. so, so this is these these are, these are really pioneering, and, and they look about as far removed as as you know. When you look at an old biplane, it really looks old and old fashioned and first world warry and sort of a different era. When you're looking at a DC three, you can absolutely see the lineage to a kind of you know a Boeing seven four seven today. Um, you, you know, the, the, it's not that that much of a stretch. So U.S. private commercial business is. Is, is sort of helping the, the, the United States economy kind of emerge from the sort of catastrophic economic de depression. But, but it's also showing the bomber men a way forward. So in 1934, the War Department issues a procurement brief for a new multi-engine bomber. It needs to be capable of 200 miles an hour. It needs to be able to fly for 10 hours. And it needs a bigger payload than anything that's come before. So you know, big firms, Douglas, um, um, Martin, Boeing, they all compete. And because 
the Vincent Trammell Act that we talked about in earlier episodes, which is this thing that you have to any development has to be developed privately under your own thing with no government funding, um, is is it hasn't happened yet. So they have to do it at their own expense. There is a kind of sort of fly off um, at Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, but 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 by that point, it's a kind of you know it's a done deal because the, the Boeing effort was the, is the Model Two Nine Nine which first flies on the 28th of July, 1936, from its base in Seattle, which you know, is where Boeing is still based, incidentally. It's got an internal bomb bay. That's, that's brand new. Normally, you just, just hang a bomb off the bottom of the, of the fuselage, but this has got an internal bomb bay. It's got pretty much retractable undercarriage. It's even got air brakes. And, and this is the key thing, it's got an automatic pilot that can keep it flying straight and level during a bomb run. It's got five machine guns protruding. Um, which is why reporters seeing it goes, "Way, it's a flying fortress," and the name sticks. And this, and also has a top speed of two hundred fifty-two miles an hour for nineteen thirty-six. is phenomenally fast. Um, phenomenally uh, fast on- and powerful. And it's got four engines rather than just two. Yeah. yeah. So they've built. They've got the plane. They've got the bomb got site. Plane? Which is the Norden bomb site, which is this, this amazing thing, which is developed by a Dutch emigre called Carl Norden. Yeah. And it's a, you know, it is absolutely. You know, incredible marvel of modern technology and science because it enables a bomb aimer to look at the target through the eyepiece and accurately compute the aircraft's ground speed and direction. And then, after taking into account the weight and size of the bombs that they've got on board, calculate exactly when to release them to achieve the best accuracy. And this is the really big thing, and you can later see the development of this in tanks, in the Sherman tank, for example. It's got gyroscopic stability, you know, uh, which is which is just... Off the radar, kind of modern sci-fi. and, and sci fi. Wow, it's, it's sci fi stuff. Total I mean, you know, 20 years before, you're kind of flying around in kind of, you know, stressed Irish linen and, and, and wooden struts. And, and now you've got kind of gyroscopic stable bomb sites. I mean, and that bomb site works really, really well in the skies of mid America. On a, yes. on a clear June day. Um, but yes. <laughs> I mean, it is very interesting, isn't it? Given, I mean, really, basically, this is a think tank. We're talking about a think tank. And a of think like-minded tank, souls, all hanging out at Langley Field. With, with Not with a blank check, but with money, actually, with, with quite a lot of money to spend on itself, who nevertheless are chewing their teeth and spitting and wailing and saying they aren't getting, what, getting enough of what they want and all this sort of stuff which I think is very, very interesting. And it's, you know, when we started talking about these guys, it's a testament to their, the lobbying power of these lads. The, the people like Tui Spots as well, who's really, really, really wedded to this idea that the bomber, the American, the, the American bomber force, when it comes, when the moment comes, will be absolutely decisive. And he's an ex-fighter pilot. So it's interesting that he's sort of switched, switched into bombing. Although maybe... You know, yeah, I mean, the other thing about all these guys, though, all these guys are just so smart. I mean, yeah, yeah. They're, they're really clever. They're incredibly experienced. They've all been part, you know, the spots is another uh, another one who's a he's, he's a pioneer. You know, he, he set an endurance record of remaining airborne for 150 hours, thanks to air-to-air refueling, which, again, is another kind of sort of pioneering bit of science, which is being developed in the United States. You know, he, he helped, he's, he's helping to develop the B-17 and later the consolidated B-24 Liberator. You know, he's had a year at the Command and General Staff School. You know, these guys are serious players. I mean, they're they're they're, they're constantly thinking about this stuff. That they're, they're they're smart, they're urbane, um, they're well read, um, and they know that they are leading lights on on new, potentially very exciting technology 
which could potentially save an awful lot of young Americans' lives. And I think that is the kind of the number one driving force, that there is this panacea that can take them into a new a new era of, of fighting. This is driven by faith in technology, yep. faith in the ideology, and a, and a zeal to, to, to win a war by saving as many, in a way, save, save as many lives as, as you possibly can to do it. Yes, and, and, and I think it's really important to say to, to mention that the you know the the United States Army Air Corps is only seventeen thousand strong in September nineteen thirty nine, but the big change happens when Roosevelt in the summer of nineteen forty says we're going to be building fifty thousand aircraft a year, and suddenly that's that's massive, and, and all the airmen are sent over to Britain to observe the Battle of Britain and the Night Blitz and all the rest of it, and they they are you you get this sense that from 1940 onwards they are really really ratcheting up the tempo and are going to you know air power is absolutely going to be at the heart of any future military operations that the United States undertakes and there's the old expression isn't there that the road to hell is paved with good intentions and we started yes. this with the Schweinfurt 2 i mean essentially reduction to non-combat effectiveness of us 8th air force these are the good intentions that lead to that raid we described in the first half of this episode yep. that, that are at the heart of the American bombing campaign. Obviously, this is a series of episodes. We'll, we have lots more to say. Thanks for listening to this one, part one. And if you can't wait to hear the next episode, you can hear our whole series right now. Search for us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our channel for every episode now. Plus, get this, finally, curated playlists of the best series from the last four years. Stuff divvied up into its subject so you can find it easily. Dunkirk, D-Day, Arnhem, maybe? Or become a member of our independent company with live streams and book deals on patreon.com slash wehaveways. None of it for more than the price of a pint or two. Um, we'll see you very soon. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Cheerio. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.